This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 31 of Polar Geopolitics. And don't forget to uh, rate and review us, uh, follow us, like us, wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, wherever. Here on episode 31, we uh, meet an old friend, a guest we've had on previous episodes, Peter Roberts, associate professor at the University of Stavanger. He's been on the show a number of times, uh, giving us these these short polar histories. And in this episode, though, we're going to talk about something a little more in-depth based on a new article that uh, Peter has written for the Geographical Journal. It's called, Does the Science Criterion Rest on Thin Ice? And Peter will tell us all about that, uh, some of the historical roots of the situation that he's describing in the article, but also some of the contemporary relevance for governance in Antarctica. So, Peter, great to have you here on Polar Geopolitics once again. Thanks very much, Eric. Nice to be back. Okay, so this article, basically, uh, you're looking at the uh, ATS, the Antarctic Treaty System, which is the governance regime of Antarctica, which is largely grounded on the capability of uh, countries, particularly the consultative parties, to conduct science in and around Antarctica. Thus, uh, science is really the, the currency of governance and geopolitics in Antarctica. But the system, as you say here in, uh, in the article, Peter, is uh, is kind of under threat now because of climate change and the sort of the, the geophysical changes that are taking place in Antarctica. So tell us a bit about the article and the argument that you make in it. Thanks, Eric. Yes, that's right. The starting point I came from was to wonder whether it really was still the best idea in this day and age of anthropogenic climate change to be giving the choicest and most important seats at the Antarctic decision-making table to the states that conduct most science. Now, the Antarctic Treaty System, as you say, has long had the concept of consultative parties, CPs for short, who are the parties who engage in the most science in Antarctica. They make a meaningful scientific contribution. They have decision-making power within the Antarctic Treaty System. And there are a lot of reasons, I think, to, to look upon that as a positive thing. Now, historically, though, the reasons why science has been so important in Antarctica are in part related to dynamics around the International Geophysical Year, the very misnamed 18 months between July 1957 and the end of December 1958, in which Antarctica played a central role in a set of coordinated global scientific investigations. Now, out of the IGY came a sense that Antarctica really was a very good place for doing a lot of geophysical research in particular, But also in a geopolitical sense, Antarctica could be an arena for particularly the superpowers, but other countries as well, to demonstrate their power. And I don't think the analogy that some people draw between the IGY and the Olympic Games is actually all that far-fetched. If you were the United States, you could spend an awful lot of money building a station at the South Pole. The Soviet Union sent huge, big oceanographic research ships and in addition had an overland expedition to the Pole of Inaccessibility. And ultimately, I think this left a sense that science was good in Antarctica, not just because you learned useful things about Antarctica and useful things about the global geophysical system as a whole, but also because science was a means for countries to compete. So it wasn't as though science eradicated competition, science became the vehicle through which competition was performed. Now, I actually reckon that's a pretty good thing because there are other ways you could compete that are far more brutal, military build-ups being perhaps the most obvious among them. Now, Antarctica, however, did rest upon this sense that it was a laboratory. And there have been a lot of scholars who've taken this idea up. A gentleman named Sebastian Kreivsmuhl has written particularly nicely about this, I think. 
And the idea of Antarctica as a laboratory, again, rests upon this sense that you can conduct a lot of good science there, but also, in a sense, Antarctica is disembodied. It's disconnected from the rest of the world, not necessarily in the geophysical sense, because the currents, the atmospheric phenomena that shape Antarctica and through which Antarctica shapes the world, those connections have always been realised. But there has been a sense that there's not really much else you can do in Antarctica, and Antarctica is a place where science has a natural sense of primacy. Now, I wanted to argue that anthropogenic climate change might change this, because instead of, for instance, things that happen in the rest of the world becoming evident in Antarctica through, for example, the holes in the ozone layer, which in the 1980s became really quite a big deal, and they were detected in Antarctica through scientists initially, I think, working for the British Antarctic Survey, but potentially also changes in Antarctica could then flow back really strongly to the rest of the world. And anthropogenic climate change really, I think, is the best example of this, because if the atmosphere heats up, Antarctic ice begins to melt, global sea levels begin to rise, currents begin to change, there are significant and direct consequences for the rest of the world that challenge this sense that Antarctica is separate. And that, in turn, I think, raises some interesting questions about the connection between change that happens in Antarctica and the right to take decisions affecting Antarctica. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of um, this cliche. It's kind of a cliche at this point. Uh, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic, but very rarely do I hear anybody say what happens in Antarctica doesn't stay in Antarctica. But perhaps that's, that's the case you're making here. In a sense, I think it is, yes. And as I say, those geophysical connections have always been recognised, but I think they've always been kept at arm's length, partly on the grounds that Antarctica, it is a continent and it is isolated and it's largely remote. And the effects that Antarctica has had on the rest of the world, either in terms of economics, there has been no mining, no real economic activity there, or in terms of geopolitics, there aren't air routes over the Antarctic in the same way there are over the Arctic. There have never been military bases in the same way. This, I think, has built a sense that there isn't really much else going on. And therefore, it's right and proper that science is the most important and the best thing to do there. And it feeds, I think, this sense of disembodiment, in a way, from the rest of the world. And that's really what I wanted to start trying to think about. In terms of the countries that participate in uh, Antarctic science, I mean, they're more well represented than in the Arctic, if we make that comparison here, but still only a small uh, a small fraction of the total number of countries in the world, right? That's true. That's true. I can't remember off the top of my head how many countries are consultative parties today, but it's in the high 20s. It's certainly not a majority of the world's countries, uh, as defined by, for example, uh, United Nations member states. Now, it's true also that pretty much every country in the world, in one way or another, contributes to anthropogenic climate change be it in an infinitesimally small fraction for some countries or massively for some other countries. Nevertheless, those impacts are disproportionate. And I have an idle moment sometimes wondered, the overlap between countries that are disproportionately large greenhouse gas emitters, the USA, Russia, Australia, Canada even, and countries that have powerful positions within the ATS as consultative parties, that overlap is actually surprisingly big. And this, I think, raises an interesting question. You mentioned the idea that what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic necessarily, but there's also been quite a lot of discussion about the importance of the Arctic as a space where cooperation can take place without necessarily being bogged down by events that take place elsewhere in the world. And that's, that's certainly a question that I think is worth thinking through and taking seriously. But in the Antarctic, should we continue to have a situation, particularly when Antarctica is today so strongly associated with environmental values? the rigorous environmental protection that's come in through the Madrid Protocol, 
should we still have a situation in which the greenhouse gas emissions made by consultative parties are in effect completely independent of their seats at the decision-making table, simply because they do significant science. That's this science criterion you talk about here in the article. And, and I guess your, your, your concern there is on uh, this, this regime that the science criterion creates. And you're, are you suggesting then some sort of, some sort of uh, fundamental changes in the way Antarctica is governed in terms of who gets a seat at the table in smaller countries that are very much affected by climate change or, let's say, through the effects of climate change on Antarctica, even those countries that don't have the resources, the, the financial resources, the scientific resources, the, the infrastructural resources to contribute to scientific research on Antarctica, they should have a seat at the table regardless of, the, of their scientific contributions. This is where I think it starts to get interesting. Because if you're going to say the science criterion isn't perhaps the best way to do it, then I think it's a very fair question to say, well, what's better? And I'm reminded of Winston Churchill's famous comment about democracy being the worst of all systems of government, except for the others that have occasionally been tried from time to time. So what might actually be better? Well, one possibility would be to accord power in Antarctica to the states that are most strongly affected by what happens in Antarctica. And by that, I mean the states that would be affected most strongly by the rising sea levels that result from the melting of Antarctic ice. But straight away, you've got a couple of very big problems. The first one is, of course, that not all sea level rise is attributable to Antarctic melting. There's not as much ice in Greenland as there is in Antarctica, but there is still some. Furthermore, not all countries that are affected by rising sea levels are affected equally. And that's partly to do with geography. Bangladesh, for example, has a very large population in low-lying areas. Other countries which may have large coastlines are more sparsely populated. But it's also a question of socioeconomics, I think, in addition to geography. Now, Denmark is also a very flat country. So is the Netherlands. And they could theoretically also be affected quite heavily by sea level rise. But they're also much richer countries. In the case of Denmark, Denmark is by no means one of the world's largest fossil fuel emitters. On the contrary, Denmark has a well-deserved reputation for being associated with renewable energies. But Denmark nevertheless has extracted a great deal of oil from the North Sea, and it's not as though Denmark has been entirely on the victim side in this either. So the question of who is the most affected party is, I think, a very, very difficult one to solve. In the case of Norway, to take another example, Say the Gulf Stream changes, lots more water comes into the oceans, current systems shift, the Gulf Stream goes, and the coast of Norway suddenly becomes a lot more like the coast of eastern Canada or east Greenland than the comparatively temperate area it is now. Does that mean Norway is disproportionately affected and Norway should get a seat at the table? I think you get into a lot of problems when you start thinking along those lines. They're interesting and they're fun to think through. But I'm very pessimistic about whether we could get a more equitable system based on such criteria. That then leads me to wonder, is this the kind of question that you pose because you want to get people to think more carefully about the premises rather than because you want to get them to change the system? And this is where I suspect the answer probably lies. So the idea of a class of affected states who should have unique decision-making power over Antarctica is going to be a difficult one because it's kind of hard to determine who the most affected states are. There's a second point that comes from this which is that if you're Bangladesh and you want to ensure that your low-lying, highly populated coastal areas aren't flooded, what do you need to do in order to stop the sea levels rising? And the answer to that isn't to gain control over Antarctica. The answer to that is to gain control over greenhouse gas emissions. Now, in my view, Antarctica has the potential to become a conduit 
through which greenhouse gas emissions flow. That is to say, greenhouse gases that are emitted around the world cause ice melting, which occurs in Antarctica, and then in turn cause the sea level rises. It's going to be cold comfort to Bangladesh to know that Bangladesh has an important and large seat at the Antarctic table when the power to regulate activity in the Antarctic does not really lead in any meaningful way to a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. So that's another problem that I suspect can't really be overcome. So are we stuck with the science criterion? Well, I think that's a little bit harsh because there are good reasons to think the science criterion is actually a good thing. But I would also suggest that we want to pay a little bit more attention to the moral underpinnings of science here. The fact that we, I think, widely endorse the science criterion because it's seen to be consistent with the kind of values that we ought to have in Antarctica, the continent for science and peace. And I dare say, since the Madrid Protocol, also a continent for environmental protection. And science has in large part been constructed as not only synonymous with those values, but also, in fact, a great way to ensure that those values are advanced. And a lot of good research related to climate change is actually done in Antarctica. Nevertheless, if you're the US, if you're Australia, you're Russia, you pump an awful lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, should that be wholly disconnected from your seat at the Antarctic decision-making table? Should the countries that cause Antarctica to change and thus wreak change upon the rest of the world, should they really get to keep their seats at the Antarctic decision-making table with their domestic emissions wholly separated from their Antarctic responsibilities? And this is where I think we need to do a little bit more thinking. And ultimately, I think the answer might be not to ditch the science criterion, but to think a little bit more deeply about exactly why we value the science criterion and whether, in fact, there's a case to stop Peter robbing Paul and to say that if you want to continue to be a consultative party, perhaps one of the things to take into consideration is this dimension of to what extent do your domestic policies contribute to environmental change in Antarctica through ice melting. Now, that's still going to be a very, very difficult thing to work out. Far be it from me to say there's an easy formula to determine how much an individual country affects Antarctica. But I do think the underlying question wants some attention because it gets to this issue of the moral legitimacy of science in Antarctica and in turn, the moral underpinnings of the science criterion, which I would suggest is one of the more central parts of the Antarctic Treaty System as a whole. So think of this possibly as a way of noting a potential future problem, suggesting how we might think carefully about it, rather than suggesting a concrete alternative solution, which I fully suggest I don't really have to hand. Even without suggesting, making a suggestion on how to how to reshape Antarctic governance, quite a big uh, question. I guess what you are suggesting here is um, altering, modifying the incentive structure, right? Because the science criterion has been successful in stimulating countries to actually go there and do good science, good, important science uh, with a with a certainly all kinds of uh, great uh, great tangible results, such as you mentioned the the discovering the hole in the ozone layer. But also now with this modification, which you're putting out there. You're trying to say that there should be an incentive for countries that want to have a strong voice in Antarctica to have an incentive to to reduce their carbon emissions. Yes, I think incentives is actually a very nice way to put it. Currently, you're absolutely right. The consultative party system does incentivize countries to conduct science, and I dare say also to conduct good science, because if your peers don't think the science is very good, then you're not going to earn the prestige and the credibility that you wish to derive from an Antarctic scientific program. 
So I do think the incentive to conduct good science is there, and that's not something to be taken lightly. Nevertheless, part of the reason why Antarctica is such a good place to do science is to do with particular environmental characteristics that could also be threatened by change within Antarctica. And that's perhaps a secondary reason to think again about the relationship between domestic greenhouse gas emissions and Antarctic science. If I could put it in a very crude way, should the countries that contribute mostly to environmental change in Antarctica nevertheless potentially be able to even profit from that change? Because we have to remember, environmental change in Antarctica doesn't mean it ceases to be a scientifically interesting place. A lot of those changes associated with rapid ice melt, with carving ice shelves, they're going to be very interesting to scientists. And one could even potentially see a situation in which the countries that have the greatest scientific capacity are able to extract the greatest scientific benefit from studying considerable and rapid changes that are in turn caused by domestic greenhouse gas emissions. So the incentive to do good science isn't necessarily therefore the same as the incentive to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to preserve the Antarctic environment and to try and hinder or prevent ice sheet melting. And that, I think, is an issue that gets to the heart of part of my objection. That's a very interesting argument. I don't want to muddy this discussion in any way, but um, would this... Of course, Antarctica is a very unique place um, politically, geographically, and what have you. But it does share some similarities with the Arctic, which is uh, why we discussed both of those here on this podcast. And science, even more so today than perhaps it was uh, just 20 years ago, science has become quite the currency for having a geopolitical voice in the Arctic. Would this, this logic of your argument for Antarctica, would it have any relevance for the way that we look at the Arctic as well? That's an interesting question. Part of me is sceptical on the very simple basis there are people who live in the Arctic and there aren't permanent populations in the Antarctic in the same way. The Arctic is a homeland in a way that for most people, the Antarctic wouldn't be regarded as a homeland. And I'll add a little asterisk there because I'm aware that particularly for some Chileans and Argentinians, Antarctica is seen as something of a natural extension of the domestic landmass. But I don't think that's a majority view and I don't quite think that's analogous to the way that there are people who live and have lived since time immemorial in Arctic regions. And the dimension of people, I think, is important because when you've got people, you can't have this idea of the nice disembodied laboratory in quite the same way. There are other issues that have to be taken into account from the start. Science can't be the dominant currency in the same way. And really, the remedies then to anthropogenic climate change have to be thought of in terms of people as well as scientific production. Now, that being said, Eric, I know that you know Neolisund very well in Svalbard, and that's a very interesting case because obviously the Neolisund research station is a repurposed coal mine. And the fact that Norway, on the one hand, continues to mine coal in Svalbard and yet sponsors world-leading scientific research at Neolisund, and you'll be able to say better than I to what extent that contributes to climate change knowledge, that, I think, is an indication in some way that the incentives don't line up. If Norway has this lovely facility at Neolisund, but nevertheless continues extracting coal literally from the same archipelago that contributes to global warming, at the same time that research at Neolisund can elucidate the effects of potential climate change in the Arctic, that does raise a similar issue about the alignment of incentives. My concern would be that with the presence of people and the fact that the Arctic is a homeland, rather than simply a laboratory, the solutions are going to be a lot harder to find. But that fundamental question about alignment of incentives, I do think you're right, that that can also be thought through in the Arctic. 
I mean, you're certainly right there about the, the contradictions uh, on Svalbard. I think that's a, a large reason why coal is really uh, pretty much uh, on its way out or very much uh, already very advanced in the sort of the decoalification of uh, at least Norwegian Svalbard. But we just pedal back uh, just briefly, uh, Peter, back to uh, Antarctica and, and the arguments you make in this, in this interesting article in the, the Geographical Journal. Um, I mean, I guess you could call this a certain, uh, to a certain extent, a uh, an environmental justice lens to, to Antarctic governance that you're suggesting here, or at least I don't want to say suggesting, but putting out there. How do you think that might change the governance if if countries such as Bangladesh, you mentioned, if they had a uh, a larger influence over the governance of Antarctica, do you think that would change the way the continent is is actually governed? Ultimately, I suspect probably not. And the reason I'm hesitant there is because, for instance, if Bangladesh does want to prevent climate change wreaking havoc with its own population and economy, there's not really much it can do in Antarctica in order to try and achieve those goals. If Bangladesh were to say, right, the US, as of tomorrow, you are banned from conducting any scientific work in Antarctica forever until you reduce domestic greenhouse gas emissions to zero, I don't think it's too controversial to say that the answer to that question from a US perspective will be simple. The US is now out of Antarctica. The new administration, I think, probably has a somewhat less transactional view of foreign relations. But nevertheless, I think it's pretty clear that maintaining domestic industry and domestic economy would be prioritised over the prestige of an Antarctic science program. So from that perspective, I'd be quite pessimistic about changes in the power structure in Antarctica leading to changes related to global greenhouse gas emissions. I do wonder, again, I'm not convinced this is necessarily a better solution. I'm throwing it out more to be provocative and try and see if it's a useful thing to think with, in a sense. If the alignment of incentives can be such that maintaining status as a consultative party and indeed being regarded as a beneficial component of the Antarctic treaty system, if that can be related not just to the production of Antarctic science, but also to refraining from contributing to Antarctic environmental change through greenhouse gas emissions, if that can be woven into the structure somehow, so you can't completely disregard domestic emissions because you're doing lots and lots of very good science in Antarctica, perhaps that is a way forward. But again, I've got to be honest here, I'm struggling to think of a mechanism that will be able to make that clear. Finding a precise formula is going to be tough. But certainly interesting to, to think along these uh, these lines and to um, and to think that things could be somewhat different. I mean, I think the ATS has been considered a great success in its uh, sixty plus years now, but uh, certainly uh, ways that it could be um, reimagined to some slight extent. Of course, uh, to rebuild it from scratch would I think be very complicated. But in some ways, uh, to modify it around the edges, perhaps in uh, ways that you uh, that you elaborate here, Peter, uh, could be worth uh, considering. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to look at it. I mean, it's a cliche, but if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think there's, as, as with all cliches, there is a grain of truth that is at its heart. And in the case of Antarctica, well, it is true that for over 60 years now, the continent for peace and science has worked fairly well. And the Antarctic treaty system has endured some challenges too. We should remember that. The challenges of the 1980s, led by countries like Malaysia, most notably, also countries like Pakistan, hung in part on this idea that the Antarctic treaty system wasn't fit for purpose in the sense that it was not sufficiently representative and it could even be considered a an artefact of the colonial era. And the Antarctic treaty system did not only endure that challenge, but I dare say it's even proven to be resilient to the, and flexible to the point where it's been able to accommodate Malaysia, which is now a member of the Antarctic treaty system. 
And that flexibility, I think, is not to be underestimated. A secondary point that comes from that is, of course, the fact that the Cramer negotiations, the Convention on Antarctic Mineral Resources, were, it was negotiated, it was approved, and then at the very last minute, France and Australia voiced objections, and it never went into force. And instead, we now have what's widely known as the Madrid Protocol on Environmental Protection, which, amongst other things, famously bans dogs from Antarctica and is widely regarded as one of the more rigorous, possibly the most rigorous system of environmental protection for an area on the Earth. And the Antarctic Treaty System has been able to accommodate these changes. And that, I think, is a big point in its favour. Nevertheless, I think it's always worth trying to think one step ahead. And if we cease thinking of Antarctica as something fixed, immutable, with limited consequences for the rest of the world, if we imagine a near-term future through which Antarctica becomes the conduit through which greenhouse gas emissions become concrete rises in sea levels that affect large parts of the world significantly, then I think of our view of Antarctica changes. It's no longer just that nice disembodied ivory tower almost style laboratory. Antarctica is a mass of ice that has direct consequences for the rest of the world and reducing the environmental changes in Antarctica become a matter of rather more than just academic scientific interest. And the one thing that we didn't get uh, that much into in this uh, discussion here, Peter, and I think it was one of the, the points you make in the article, is that uh, these changes happening because of climate change are actually imperiling the uh, the abilities to, to conduct science there. And it's interesting to think that back in 1957, 58, uh, during the IGY, that's really when climate change first started kind of getting on the, the scientific uh, agenda with the, the, the Keeling uh, measurements and such, and then the, the uh, ATS uh, a couple of years later. But uh, climate change wasn't really well-known, certainly amongst the policymakers at that time. But it's certainly now, 60 years later, it's it's very much on, on the agenda of the world. And perhaps we have to accommodate that in the way that uh, this continent is governed. Yeah, I think you're right. Climate change is an issue that scientists have taken seriously for a long time now. And obviously, things like the Keeling curve have been vital in demonstrating the importance of anthropogenic climate change. Nevertheless, I think it's also true to say, as you suggest, that in the 1950s, Antarctica was regarded as an interesting place to observe things that happened to be occurring. If there was climate change underway, it's far from obvious it was caused by people. Antarctica becomes a good vantage point to spot that climate change and to record it, rather than necessarily being the thing through which that climate change gets translated into tangible, significant effects for the rest of the world, like rising sea levels. And I think that is a fundamental difference that we need to think about a little bit more carefully. I'll come back to it again, this distinction between the laboratory, which I think has this rather abstract connotation, and this rather more blunt and concrete sense, Antarctica as this mass of ice that could cause disruption to the rest of the world. And when we think about it in those terms, I think it follows quite logically that we have to think a little bit more carefully about the role of science in the governance of Antarctica. Okay, well, Associate Professor Peter Roberts of the University of Stavanger. Uh, new article, Does the Science Criterion Rest on Thin Ice? It's in the uh, Geographical Journal, available uh, up online. Thanks very much for joining us here on uh, Polar Geopolitics, and uh, look forward to having more of your um, your strange histories from the polar past as, uh, as part of this uh, show in the future. And um, good luck with the, the article and uh, your research there in Stavanger. Thanks very much, Eric. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> 